0: Good evening, everybody. You've got an outline, and we're looking at Jesus and the Bible. Uh, just a little recap. Um, we're spending this term thinking about what the Bible says about the Bible. And if you can think all the way back, and the term has gone very quickly, hasn't it? But if you can think all the way back to where we began, uh, we began by thinking about the, the, just the simple fact that we need God to speak. Oh, that's Was that better or worse? Can you hear me now? Okay. We need God to speak. Very appropriate moment for the microphone to come on. Um, We need God to speak to us directly so that we might come to know him. So that we can have a living relationship with him. And if you've been following this carefully, you'll have worked out, therefore, that the shape of the Christian life follows that truth. I think it was last week I mentioned the, the, the children's song by Dr. Trin, uh which just goes, God speaks, we listen, got to hear his word every day. Sometimes the most profound theology is taught in well-written children's songs. God speaks, we listen, got to hear his word every day. It is a brilliant summary of the Christian life, isn't it? And we've been summarising it, I think, by this uh, sentence, uh, that Christianity is like this. It is the word of God uh, bringing about faith in Christ by the spirit of God. We then thought a little bit about the role of the spirit in that. It is God speaks, God who speaks. um, But how do we get the words of God to us today? How is it that we have God's Word in the Bible. And so we talked the last two weeks about the role of the Spirit, that God's Spirit has inspired the Scriptures and caused what God wanted to be written to be written. And last week, we thought about the historical story that is part of that, that in God's sovereignty, what was written then uh, is what we read now in, in hugely accurate form. And so the Word of God bringing about faith in Christ by the Spirit of God. Well, tonight we come to the middle part of that phrase. What does the word of God do in relating us to God? And what the word of God does, it brings about faith in Christ. So it's not just that we read the Bible and we automatically come to know God. It's not like a sort of intravenous injection or something like that. But just by reading the words of the Bible, we, we know God. Actually, we know God when we put our faith in the subject matter of the Bible, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the topic is Jesus and the Bible. It was great to have that introduction because it's reminded us of those half a million words of the diversity of the Bible. Uh, there are, I thought Joe was going to ask us, you know, how many books as well? So 66 books. Uh, Three languages, one and a half thousand years in the making, 40 different authors. And so it's a legitimate question to ask, why do we have all those books in one volume? Uh, Why is it that the Bible can be bound together between these two pieces of leather or cardboard or whatever and called the Bible? And also, what do we do with some of the diversity that we find there? You know, open the Old Testament laws and... You read about how to cook a young goat in its mother's milk, or or rather, why you shouldn't do that. Um, Psalm 137, happy are we when the infants of the Babylonians are dashed against the rocks. Is that Christian scripture? And so we're talking tonight about the diversity of the Bible and what it is that unites it together. And I want to suggest that what unites the Bible together is the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn with me if you were to Luke 24. We're going to turn to Luke 24 and then towards the end of our time we're going to turn to an Old Testament passage. But Luke 24 first of all. And you may know the context. The context is uh, Easter Sunday. Christ is risen. And so this is the finale of, of the Gospel account. But instead of some glorious appearance of Jesus, Luke gives us a description of a, of a, a conversation. Um, In 13 to 35, there are two disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, just outside Jerusalem. And there's a sense of disappointment in the air. Pick it up in verse 20. These two disciples are explaining to Jesus, who they don't know uh, who he is yet, uh, what is hoped for. The chief priests, verse 20, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Now just drop down to verse 25 and notice carefully how Jesus responds to this. Verse 25, he said, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Five things I want us to notice about that. Firstly, notice that it's a rebuke. Jesus calls them foolish. That is, they should have understood, if they'd read their Old Testaments, that he would rise from the dead. Jesus is saying to them, they already had everything they need in the Scriptures, if they'd read the prophets, that is the Old Testament Scriptures, they needn't have been downcast and disappointed. That's the first thing. It's a rebuke. Second thing to notice is that Jesus says all the Scriptures are about him, doesn't he? Not just scattered references to him, not just those famous passages that we wheel out at Christmas about the Virgin being with child and so on, But every single one of those half a million words of the Old Testament, he says, are about him. Third thing, though, look carefully at verse 26. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, Jesus sharpens it a little and he says, not only is the whole Old Testament about me, but it specifically points to his suffering and death. Sorry, his death and resurrection. The focal point of it all is the cross and resurrection. And that's why he says they are foolish for doubting his resurrection. Because the Old Testament would have led them to believe it. Fourthly, notice the power of the word. The power of the word. So just think about it from these two men's point of view. If you were these two men and you're having a conversation with Jesus and suddenly you realise that he is the risen Jesus, what would you have done when he then disappeared from you? I think you would have been pretty excited, wouldn't you? You've last seen him dying on a cross. You now have a meal with him and then he disappears. I think you'd go home and say, wow. We've just seen the risen Jesus. But have a look down at verse 32. Look at what they actually say. When Jesus disappears, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They say to each other, not, wow, we've just seen the risen Jesus. They say, what a great Bible study that was back on the road. That's the excitement that they feel. And I think Luke deliberately makes that clear because he knows that we aren't going to have a meal with Jesus. We're not going to sit face to face with the risen Jesus. We're not going to get that privilege. But we do have the Bible. And so Luke is saying to us that the normal experience for the Christian disciple, as we open the Bible and understand and meet Jesus in the Scriptures, we will have that same heart-burning experience? Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Isn't that remarkable? It was when Jesus opened the Old Testament and they suddenly saw it through new lenses. They suddenly saw that their sins could be forgiven, that Jesus was king, that everything was going to be well, that the kingdom of God had come. That's the experience that matters. And then the fifth thing I want us to see is that the whole Bible only makes sense when you see that it's about Jesus. The whole Bible only makes sense when you see that it's about Jesus. Just turn to the end of the chapter now. And look how in a second meeting these themes are drawn together. In verse 36 Jesus makes a second appearance, this time among All the disciples. And look at what he says in verse 45 to 48. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Just have a look at verse 45. And. And I wonder what you imagine is happening. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I think a lot of people think of it something like this. Jesus is doing a Harry Potter moment, a miracle on their minds. He's zapping them so that their minds can suddenly be open to understand the scriptures. But look at it again. And imagine that there was no full stop or verse number between 45 and 46. Imagine instead there was a colon between 45 and 46. Verse 46 is how he does verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And this is how he opened their minds. He told them what the scriptures were about. He said, This is what was written. That the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. So if you want to have your mind open to understand the scriptures. If you want to have the same experience that the disciples had. You don't need a miracle going on in your head. You just need to understand what the scriptures are about. And Jesus tells us in black and white in 46 to 47. That they are about him, his cross, his resurrection and the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Well that's Luke 45 and I put some references on the second half of that first page. So you can see there are many, many other times when the Bible makes this point. John 5.39, you diligently study the scriptures Jesus says to the Pharisees because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. two Corinthians one verse twenty, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. one Peter one verse ten concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit in Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. Acts 13.32, we tell you the good news, what God has promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set about for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who, as to a human nature, was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The scriptures are about Jesus. And lots of implications flow from this for how we read and teach the Bible. But first of all, what does it not mean? Well, it doesn't mean this. I don't know if you... uh, Remember Where's Wally? I haven't seen him around for a while. Maybe Where's Wally's gone missing. But do you remember the Where's Wally puzzles? The idea is that there's a complex picture, lots of details. And the aim of the game is to find Wally. I wonder if anyone can see him. Probably not in the time that we've got. Daniel thinks he's found it. Good. Now, the point is that reading the Old Testament is not like that. I think sometimes people hear what I've just said and they think, "Okay, well, we've got to go and scurry around and search in the Old Testament. And sometimes you might see a little hint of Jesus somewhere. It's not like that. What it is, is if you turn over the page, reading everything in the Bible relating to Jesus Christ, relating everything in the Bible to Jesus Christ. That's different to spotting him there, like where's Wally? There are two parts to this. You can look at it two ways in two directions. Firstly, the Old Testament points us forwards to Christ. I don't know if you've ever kind of worked out the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But one way of thinking of it is that the Old Testament is is a promise and the New Testament is the fulfilment. The Old Testament and the the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, one is promising something and the other is fulfilling it. Another way of thinking of it is that the Old Testament is like the shadow and the New Testament is the reality. Or if you want the, kind of the, the more technical word, there is a type and anti-type. That is, there is a sort of a shape that is formed in the Old Testament, but the reality, the real thing, uh, comes in the New Testament. That is the general gist of it. And therefore, in the Old Testament, we're not going to see the person of Christ. We're not going to sort of see him walking around like an angel or something like that. That's a a, a kind of an unhelpful, an unfruitful way of thinking about it. Instead, we're going to see a a grand story of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And although the details of that kingdom are are, are, are huge and and complex and can take a lifetime to, to sort of unpack, The big picture is that that kingdom story only has its meaning, only has its outcome when Christ comes. Because after all, to have a kingdom, you need a king. And so the the shadows of the Old Testament, the the people and the land and the blessing and the temple and the kingship, all those things are, are kind of leading us to hope for the arrival of the king and how his coming brings an answer to all that Israel looked forward to. And therefore, an implication for reading the Bible and teaching the Bible is that if your understanding of a particular part of the Old Testament doesn't eventually lead you to Jesus, then you've not understood it. It's not been read as Christian scripture. So that's one way of looking at it. The first way, Old Testament points forward to Christ. But of course, you can also look at this the other way, that, that Christ in the New Testament points back to the Old Testament. So in other words, you cannot get your head around Jesus without the Old Testament. I mean, look at the, um, the reference from Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, just the very first verse in the, in the New Testament. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Almost every word there is an Old Testament word, isn't it? Jesus, the name, the baby Jesus was given, comes from the word Joshua. But think about those other words, Christ. You can't understand the word Christ without understanding the Old Testament story of the king of Israel. David and Solomon, the Messiah of one and two Samuel and one and two kings. And so, by calling Jesus Christ, Matthew is actually saying, "Look, there isn't this. I'm not going to tell you about some amazing guy who's just come out of the blue. I'm going to tell you about the fulfilment of the Old Testament story of Christ. Here is David's son who we've been waiting for and expecting. And can you see what that does? It makes Jesus much bigger, doesn't it? It means we've got a that five. What was it? Half a million words." of expectation building through history and tension. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus Christ, we know what this means. It's massive. So that's the first thing. Reading the Bible involves relating everything to Christ. And therefore, the second thing is, the purpose, the second implication, the purpose of reading the Bible is to bring about faith in Christ. Purpose of reading the Bible is to bring about faith in Christ. And unless you put faith in Christ, you cannot know God. You've missed the entire point. And so 2 Timothy 3.15 on the sheet. You've known the Holy Scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation. All of our Bible reading has one purpose. To bring about faith in Christ. And for that faith in Christ to grow and build throughout a lifetime. So that as we saw in 1 Peter, you know, Jesus is magnified in our lives. He is set apart as Lord in our hearts. But is there a way of teaching the Bible that doesn't do that? For example, if you are on the Sunday school team, the grub groups team, or if you were here this morning, you heard a little report from our youngest children, the mini grubs, one of the youngest groups. And what they are learning. Is it possible to open the Bible and and teach in such a way that doesn't relate to Christ? Doesn't teach us about Christ? Well there is. And I'll I'll show you an example of it in a moment. But a very common way is, is moralism. To look at the Bible for kind of rules and lessons and examples. And say actually this is how you lead a good life. It's like that terrible illustration that you hear so often that the Bible is like an instruction manual. Have you ever heard that? The Bible is like the kind of instruction manual for your car or your TV or something. No, the Bible is not an instruction manual. It is a story. It's a massive story of the kingdom that is teaching us the hugeness, the significance, the, the awesomeness of Jesus. To reduce the Bible to an instruction manual, to focus on the moral dimension is to miss the whole point. The moral dimension of the Bible, as you learn in the book of Romans, is to reveal our sin so that we know our need of Christ, so that we'll be made wise for salvation. So yes, it is possible to teach the Bible and actually arrive at a different conclusion, to actually preach a different gospel, which is why this stuff is so important. So that we'll spend a lifetime actually reading and teaching the Bible in a way that leads people to Christ. Well, let me give you an example. I wonder if you'd turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. This is how we're going to end, just by giving a practical example. 1 Samuel 17 is one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. And because, hopefully it's familiar to to many It'll be a good one to to, to use an example. So I'm going to read the beginning and end. So follow with me. uh, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 16. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damin between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now, just for the sake of time, I'll we'll miss the, uh, the middle bit, but just pick it up in verse 41. David at this point has persuaded Saul to let him fight the Philistine. He's been offered Saul's armour. He's declined it. And so now David, little, defenceless David, is going to face Goliath. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistine saw that their hero was dead... They turned and ran. It's a brilliant story, isn't it? Has you on the edge of your seat, I think, doesn't it? Brilliant story, brilliantly told. And it is, of course, the classic story of the underdog triumphing over the bully. It's even become a sort of a a, a phrase, isn't it? An idiom. The David and Goliath story, you know, Apple against IBM or whatever it was, I can't imagine it now, but that was the story. And so, if you're given this to teach to a bunch of young people or a Bible study or something like that, what is the point of it? What is the story there for? Now, one approach that would be quite intuitive to most people is to use the characters of the story as examples of how to live and how not to live. So clearly, the the positive example is David, isn't it? David is the hero whose courage and faith in God in the face of opposition is highly commendable. And so the teaching point of the passage, if you take that approach, is likely to be, well, we too should be like David. And there are plenty of delightful details in the passage that you can plunder to make that point very powerful. He is small. Goliath is big. Goliath is scary, but David's not scared. He uses stones against Goliath's sword. He trusts God and wins the victory. And so as you're teaching your children in Sunday school, well, maybe there's an application here for them. If, If they're being bullied in the playground, maybe there is a lesson here that they should stand up to the Goliaths of the world and they'll be all right. And if you go down that line, you can start pulling out the details. I've actually heard it taught, where the five stones in David's pouch become the five Christian virtues of obedience, service, Bible reading, prayer and fellowship. That's how you defeat the Goliaths. Of course, we're not going to teach our children to throw stones in the playground. So let's spiritualize it. And these five stones are Bible reading and prayer and fellowship. And that's how you defeat Goliath. The problem is we're not told that that is the reason the story is here. See, if the story of David and Goliath were here to give us an example, why not go the whole way? If it's legitimate to make a link between David's courage and ours, then why not make a link between David's violence and our situation? Why not teach the child to respond with violence when he's bullied in the playground? In fact, why not teach the child to actually take a sword to school and chop off the head of his enemies? In all seriousness, what is the actual legitimate reason for not following that application of this passage? And then if David is going to be an example to us, if that's what he's in the Bible for, then what do we do when he commits adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11? How do we decide he's a good example here, but not such a good example in that chapter? You see the issue. And so we've got to remember what the Bible is here for. 1 Timothy 3, 15. It is here to make us wise for salvation. It is here to introduce us to Jesus. And as you work on the passage, you'll see how that works. So just look at the context, for example, 16 verse 1. If I can separate the mouldy pages of my Bible... 16 verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? This story is about the kingship of Israel. 16 verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that down, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So that context is very revealing, isn't it? little Johnny who's been bullied in Sunday school, well, he may be facing the Goliath in the playground, but he's not been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the Messiah of Israel. And so only by completely ignoring the context are we able to teach the story as a brave young man who comes out fighting his enemies like this. Now, clearly the context teaches that this story is about what it means for David to be God's anointed king. And then look at the context after the chapter. Well, we won't look at it now, but 18 and 19, we then see two different responses to David. Jonathan loves him, adores him. In fact, we're told that Jonathan loves David more than the love of women. Which has led to people saying David and Jonathan must be in a homosexual relationship. And that means the Bible's okay with homosexuality. But it completely misses the point. Jonathan loves David more than women because Jonathan loves David as the Messiah. Jonathan actually worships David as the Christ. And then in contrast to Jonathan, we see Saul's response, which is to murder him. And so you get two responses, the two responses which have been marking humanity ever since to God's Christ. Worship or murder. And then zoom out a little bit further and think actually what is going on in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Israel is asking God for a king. And we are learning here what kind of king God is going to provide. A king who is going to defeat our great enemy. The enemy of sin and Satan and death in the most surprising way. With weakness and faith in God rather than strength. Which, as you turn to the beginning of 1 Samuel, you'll see is the theme of the book, is what is promised. And so, as we read the Bible in its context, the close context, the wider context, the context of the whole Bible, and then the context ultimately that leads to Jesus, we can see that this story is so much bigger than how to treat the bullies in the playground. We're learning that Jesus is a great saviour who defeats God's enemies in the most surprising way. And therefore, it takes us, doesn't it, to the cross, to this victory over our enemies in weakness. And so our view of Jesus is now just a little bit bigger, a little bit deeper. Well, there's a <clears throat> an example of uh, how we should treat the Bible and see Christ magnified in it. So let me conclude by saying this. That if that is true, if Jesus is the heart of the Bible, if the Bible is here to bring us, make us wise for salvation. Then there is no greater experience than being addressed by God through his word. This is something that we've been, I guess, emphasising in this series of talks. That there is an alternative way of thinking about Christianity, which says actually the the word of God is one thing, but there are other things. There are voices that you might hear. There are coincidences and all sorts of experiences that you might have outside the Bible. And we say, well, sure, that might be the case, but you're never going to surpass meeting Christ in the words of the scriptures, because that's what the disciples who had seen the risen Jesus face to face, that's what excited them, when they said, weren't our hearts burning? When he opened the scriptures to us, there's no greater experience we can have in this world. And so, let me encourage you to make that your lifelong delight. To be someone who delights in the scriptures, who never exhausts them so that Christ is magnified in your heart, And let me encourage you to make that your lifelong ministry. Something some of us are going to be thinking about on Saturday. Think what does that look like in a kind of a full time context? But whether that's for you or not. The big point is. This is going to be our ministry. If we're going to serve God and glorify him. If we're going to raise children who can stand up for Christ in this difficult world. Then we're going to do it through teaching the word. And it begins with us by believing it ourselves. So why don't we just have a moment and I'll pray and then hand back to Joe. two Timothy three fifteen. You've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that your spirit has breathed it out, brought it into our present time with tremendous accuracy. So that when we read the Bible, we can meet Jesus and put our faith in him. We pray that this might be our lifelong delight and our lifelong ministry. That both we and others will see Jesus and our hearts and their hearts will burn. And we ask this for his sake. Amen.